Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Still going to be the opening, even though you tell me that you hate it. I just think we need a consistent opening. Hi, hello there. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. My name is Jess. No, it's boring. My name's Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome to season two. Yes. Oh my God. It is the first episode of the new season. season We're in New South Wales. Boom. The first state in Australia. Yeah. Correct. Well, no, not really. Again. 40,000 years of Aboriginal No, yeah, history. God, white people, sorry. Um, first state in white Australia. I used to live there. Uh, Sydney's there. I hate Sydney. I'm also not a fan of Sydney. It's real the worst. It's the, I, I just, I don't know if people from Sydney are people. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're very... That's my conspiracy theory. Nobody lives in Sydney. It's all just like robot people walking around being like... It's like that flat earth theory where they're like, everyone in Australia is an actor. It's all a lie. That's just Which is true. I I get regular checks from the government. The one thing though about Sydney, because I was down there for... Last time I was in Sydney literally was for six hours going in for an audition. And... um, Six hours too long to be in Sydney. Exactly. But on the way back from the audition, I found, you know, those jiggly cheesecakes? Yeah, I have eaten the OG jiggly cheesecake. I had from a jiggly Japan. cheesecake in Sydney. So that's Sydney's only claim to fame with me. Yeah. Jiggly um, cheesecake. I don't think I have any good memories in Sydney. I've been to Sydney a couple of times. Um, Nothing I can't gr- remember enjoying myself. Except for I went to Patty's Markets once when I was a kid and um, I tried to buy a bunny. A bunny? A bunny. Hmm. Well, that's one thing that New South Wales has over Queensland. They're allowed to have rabbits. We aren't allowed to have rabbits. I would really like a rabbit. I would too. You're going to have to move to Sydney. Mm, No. Or anywhere else that's not Queensland. Um, You can have it in Melbourne, can't you? Yeah. Anyway, digressions about things, about Um, bunnies. But also look out for our new bunny-related podcast. (gasps) Zane, let's have a bunny podcast. (laughs) Yes. He's like, I'm tired. I've got like 30 podcasts on the go at the moment. I'm so beat. Oh, well, the people want bunnies. Oh, no, it's mental. I went to, so Zane's, um, Zane's loft and apartment building is over the top of a bar. I went to the bar. That's insane. And I heard them tipping out the things. I was like, that's the sound. That's the sound that keeps happening in the podcast of people throwing out <laughs> bottles. <laughs> And one of the bottles was mine. Anyway, we're in New South Wales. And to open the season, 
We Ellen's just- pulled out all the stops, right? So she's been researching this for a really long time and I tried to come in and be like, hey, and she's like, you know what? I kind of got it sorted and you know what? She does. So I'm worried now that uh, you've created unrealistic expectations for the quality of this podcast. No, I mean, we'll banter. You know, we'll banter. We can, we the banter will smooth over the cracks like <laughs> usual. <laughs> so Ellen, uh, what is our first and second episode going to be about our first and second episode um we're just tackling the most famous serial killer case in australian history the backpacker murders ivan malad ivan Wolf creek the belangelo forest yes he's got many siblings many many siblings (laughs) there's like 14 of them isn't there there is 14 of them in total see i know my shit Keep listening if you want to find out all the names of the Mlat siblings and other fun facts. Yes. All right. All righty. Sorry. Let's go back. Let's go back. All right. Way on a way back when. This was this case was in nineteen the late eighties, early nineties. So for once, we're not doing a historical case. Yeah. Thank God. Oh my God. Uh, we finally come out of the nineteenth century into the twentieth. Soon we'll have a case from the present. Like right now. Yeah, right now. Yeah. We'll just record one while our murder's record, happening. Yeah, it's just recording us killing Zane. <laughs> Poor Zane. He's died so many hypothetical times in this podcast. Alrighty, let's start with the actual details of the case. So, the Hume Highway is an 840-kilometer stretch of road. Jess is eating cheese. <laughs> Sorry, my throat is like, it needs dairy. That's not correct. The Hume Highway is an 840-kilometre stretch of road that takes you from Sydney to Melbourne, a much better city of Australia. <laughs> is that what it says? No, that was ad-libbing. <laughs> I'm so naturally funny. Um, in 1819, Governor Lachlan Macquarie ordered that a road be built connecting Picton in southwest Sydney to Goulburn in the southern Tablelands. The Great South Road, as it was called, because Australians love a Great South something. Great Ocean Road. Yeah. Great Southern Land. Great anything you give us a road we'll call it great, great. it doesn't need to be that great it's just a road, just a road. um alrighty. so the great south road as it was named was overhauled in 1833 by surveyor general thomas mitchell and works have been continuing on the road basically until the present day the modern day highway mostly follows the original tracks and links australia's two larger cities making it an important route for freight and also just generally for people to get from sydney to melbourne from a to b from a to b yep Named after famous explorer Hamilton Hume, the Hume Highway passes through some historic Australian towns and roadside attractions, such as the Big Merino in Goulburn, the world's largest concrete sheep, <laughs> the Dog on the Tucker Box in Gundagai, Albury Wodonga, Australia's biggest country town, one half of which sits in New South Wales and the other half in Victoria, didn't separated know that. by the Murray River. I also didn't know why it was called Albury Learning Wodonga. things. Um, and of course, it also passes through Australia's current most famous country town, the town of Yas. 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 Um, being as this is Australia, the Hume Highway also crosses a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. There's some there's some wide open spaces there. Wide open So Australia spaces. was riding a tourism boom in the 1980s, partially thanks to um, our friend Paul Hogan, friend of the podcast, Paul Hogan. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> Throw a shrimp on, shrimp on the barbie, even Literally. though we do not say shrimp. No, we don't. It's a prawn. It's a prawn. But uh, thank you for literally saying the next line. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Um, so, yeah, Crocodile Dundee and the whole through a shrimp on the Barbie thing made a lot of people internationally be like, you know what, I want to go to Australia. It looks dope. Friends of the podcast, Georgie Hobson and Thomas Davis, were in that movie about Paul Hogan. Yes, they were. 
I loved that mini it was series. So Hope. bad. It was fantastic. Honestly, they cried. Okay. No, no. But the bit where they're meant to be going to the Oscars, right? It's at QPAC, and in one of the shots, they haven't edited out the Queensland Symphony Orchestra sign. You, you can don't know that the Queensland it. Symphony Orchestra didn't play at the Oscars. <sighs> you don't know that. I thought I was raging. I was like, "Why is this so bad?" The best part of that show was Caroline Kennison, who played Paul Hogan's mum. Yes, and she also- was legit incredible. She was legit in cred. The whole show was in cred. I love that docuseries and also Crocodile Dundee is one of my favorite movies. That is, no, that's not true. It is true. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. One of oh my, my favorite God. movies. You're going to have to go on second take and talk about Crocodile Dundee. I'll then. happily do that. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, back to the podcast. Um, I love Paul Hogan. Uh, but yeah, so the ads and hoags and everything, people had like a vision of what they thought Australia was like, big, wide open spaces, cool, weird animals that they haven't got anywhere else, friendly locals who like a drink and a chat, like me and Jess. Um, the Australian dollar was low, airfares were cheap and low cost backpacker hostels popped up all over Australia's capital cities. But there was a bit of an issue for the tourists on how to get from place to place. So they weren't most of the tourists coming to Australia weren't looking to hang out in Sydney, whatever, because they also thought that Sydney sucked. Um, they wanted to travel to the outback to see kangaroos and billabongs and sleep under the stars and what have you. Uh, but that Australia, gets on real quick, though, folks. No, it doesn't. The outback sucks. Oh my god! <laughs> I hate the outside. So I enjoy the outside. The outback doesn't suck. It's pretty. Mm. Um. Debatable. But yeah, so Australia is really, really big. Um, unlike Europe, it doesn't really have like a train system that links everywhere to everywhere else. Um, and although we do have a pretty good highway system, it's not like the USA where there's like Route 66 and like, you know, diners everywhere and like cities to go to. Nah, it's mostly nothingness. It's just nothing. Um, so some tourists would drive and like buy just really cheap cars and drive around, but the petrol even if the car was cheap, you'd spend a lot more money than it was worth on the petrol. Mm. And other travellers chose to hitchhike. Australia was a hitchhiker's dream. Well, all the guidebooks at the time said that Australia was a really safe place to travel, that everybody was really friendly, like locals aren't going to give you a hard time. Um, So hitchhiking is safe. It had kind of already started to die off in other places, I think especially America. Oh, because of all the hitch, like that guy that killed all the hitchhikers there's so many guys that killed hitchhikers in america Sorry. so many um but yeah so the tourists were like cool we're gonna go to australia we're gonna hitchhike um as the hume highway is the main drag connecting australia's to most populated cities and tourist attractions it was not an uncommon sight to see tourists standing on the side of the highway with hiking boots on their feet and giant fluorescent packs on their back thumbs outstretched waiting for a ride Part of the appeal of hitchhiking for tourists was meeting like the Australian characters, like, you know, in their minds, I'm sure they all thought they were going to be like Mick Dundee. Um, Nah, mate. But yeah, it was the best way, best way to see the country, meet interesting people, um, see, you know, things that you wouldn't normally see if you were just catching a train or something like that, you know, little towns and everything like that. Um, And Australia was like, a, a challenge for people who had already traveled elsewhere in Europe or whatever. It was like untouched, except not at all. But that's what they thought. They were like, we're going to a wild place, an interesting place, <laughs> a scary place. It was scary. Um, all right. So in 1989, a 23 year old man named Paul Onions. <gasps> 
my sweet baby angel. Jess is in love with Paul Onions. Oh, I love Um, you. So he made for Australia, arriving on the 22nd of December. He'd been in the Navy since he was young and he was over it. He was unemployed, sick of the rainy skies in England, and he decided to go traveling. He went to New Delhi and, and Singapore before arriving in Sydney and he booked into a backpackers and met a bunch of like-minded young travellers, um, people who had spent time living on the road, picking fruit, making money where they could and hitchhiking from place to place. He wandered around the streets of Sydney, partied it up with a bunch of other backpackers at Bondi Beach and rang in the 90s in the Rocks, a fancy and historic suburb of Sydney. He wanted to head down to Melbourne, maybe get a little bit of work picking fruit and his backpacker mates told him the best way to see the country was to hitchhike. Bus fares were too expensive, and besides, the best way to get to know a country is through its people. I quoted that from a website. I don't believe that. Um, So Paul Onions caught a train from central Sydney to Liverpool, which was the best spot to jump onto the Hume Highway if you were hitchhiking. Once there, he walked down the highway for half an hour or so in the dehydrating summer heat, the killer of many an English tourist. He reached a little shopping centre and went inside to buy himself a drink. When he came outside, a man approached him, probably noticing like his big backpack and other, you know, Obvious signs that that he was a tourist. (laughs) Um, And he asked Paul where he's headed to Melbourne. Paul responds and the man says he's going to Canberra and that he'll take Paul with him. To Paul, the man looks like the most, looks like uh, the famous Aussie cricketer Merv Hughes, which is with his big mustache running down the side of his lips. And Paul gratefully accepts the ride. So Paul climbed into the passenger seat of the man's big four-wheel drive. It was like a big four-wheel drive with a big bull bar at the front and um, raggedy sheepskin covers inside. So Paul introduces himself to the man and the man says his name's Bill. So as they careen down the highway, Paul and Bill are making great conversation, having chats. Bill's asking Paul a lot of questions like, is he alone in Australia? Is he meeting up with anybody in Melbourne? When is he back in England? And Paul's answering, but he's starting to feel that some of the questions are getting a little personal. Um, Bill tells him some information about himself, uh, that he's heading to Canberra to stay with some friends, that his family is from Yugoslavia, and that he's divorced. Um, Paul's enjoying the drive, enjoying the scenery of the Southern Highlands, but he is a bit weirded out by the driver who keeps asking him all these questions. Um, Asking him questions like whether or not he had any special forces training in the Navy, which Paul hadn't. To make conversation, Paul makes an offhand comment about how many Asians there are in Australia, which sets Bill off on a racist rant. Oh, God. Yep. So a fair way into the drive um, around the Mittagong area, Bill's demeanour starts to change. He stops talking. Paul keeps on trying to make conversation. Bill, Bill is just like actually not responding to him. Um, and Paul is starting to panic a little tiny bit. Paul is Tumble a, roll out of the car. Get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Get out. <laughs> um, Paul isn't a big guy. Uh, and to him, Bill looks like a big, scary motherfucker. Um, and after a long silence, Bill finally starts speaking again. He says, this far out of Sydney, you start to lose the radio. I'll pull over and get some tapes out of the boot. Nope. This makes Paul realize his paranoia isn't unfounded because there are tapes right next to them in the center console. Yikes. Bill finds a spot to pull up and goes around to the back of the car. Paul's really starting to panic. He decides to get out of the car and pretend to stretch his legs so he can see what Bill is doing around the back of the car. But this makes Bill angry and he tells Paul to jump back into the car. Paul is in the car trying to calm down when Bill comes back, jumps into the driver's seat and buckles up. Relieved, Paul thinks he's all right until Bill jumps back out again and fishes for something underneath the driver's seat. He pulls out a revolver and says, this is a robbery. Nah. Paul is trying to like reassure Bill, tell him to calm down and Bill tells him to shut the fuck up. Uh, we'll be swearing in this episode. Sorry. We swear in every episode. We swear episode. in every ev- ev- fucking episode. <laughs> we swear in every fucking episode. Um, so from underneath the seat, Bill pulls out a bag full of rope. Um, Paul 
sensing what's about to go down, goes for a seatbelt. Bill tells him to put it back on, but Paul is out of the car, legging it down the highway. He hears Bill, he hears Bill yell after him and he hears a great crack as a shot rings through the air. He keeps running and suddenly Bill is there right behind him. They struggle for a minute before Paul is off again, shirt sleeve torn, but mostly unharmed. He keeps on running, turning back to look at Bill, who is standing by the car, grinning at him. No one will stop, Fuck. Bill yells. Get back in here. Oh. But Paul keeps running down the highway. Joanne Berry sees two men next to a car pulled over on the side of the highway. She sees one man run onto the highway trying to stop the passing cars. She then sees the other man chase after the first, tackling him to the ground on the median strip where they fight for a bit before the first man runs off again, jumping right in front of her car. He pleads with her, telling her that the other man has a gun, but Joanne doesn't want to get involved because she has her kids in the car with her. But the man literally rips open the car door and jumps in, locks it behind him. Joanne's like, get the fuck out of my car, you psycho. And he says, no fucking way am I doing that. That fucking loony bin has a gun. Um, And she drives off with him inside. And Paul looks back in the rear vision mirror and sees Bill standing there next to his car, still grinning at him. Like an actual psycho. Jesus fucking Christ. Yep. You wouldn't sleep ever again. Never again. Paul Onions. I can't believe you can sleep. Doll. Joanne drives him to the police station in Bowral where he gives his statement, um, panting in an obvious distress to Constable Janet Nicholson. He tells her that Bill took everything of his, his passport, his airline ticket, his pack, his wallet, everything that he's got. Um, And then another police officer at the station pulls him to a room that's filled like floor to ceiling with pictures. The cop tells him that these are all missing people who are from all over Australia. He tells Paul how close he came to becoming one of them. He says that they could have been looking for him for years like a needle in a haystack. Can I tell you an anecdote about Paul Onions? Yes. So I can't believe you have one, but yes. Well, on My Favourite Murder, they've talked about Ivan Milat before and someone wrote into My Favourite Murder about Paul Onions because they were working at the Hard Rock Cafe in London and Wolf Creek was coming out and there was like this massive group in the like the Hard Rock Cafe. They were like, we're all going to go and this one girl was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go see Wolf Creek and they're like, why? And they're like, yeah, my boyfriend kind of escaped Ivan Milat. Lol, it was Paul Onions. Oh, my God. That is messed up. Messed up, right? Messed up. Messed up. Anyway, onward. I also wouldn't want to see Wolf Creek in that situation. No, thank you. John Jarrett, definitely not. It's a no for me. Um, The cops plays a bolo for the guy driving a silver four-wheel drive who looks like Merv Hughes, Um, but the Bowerall police are pretty realistic about the fact that they're not going to find the guy. He would have taken off by then. Mm. So they give Paul $20 to get back to Sydney, and he takes the train this time. Good. So thousands of people do actually go missing in Australia every year. In 1997, which was the closest year to when this all went down that I could find information for, 28,719 people were reported missing. (sighs) So as I said, Australia is a big disconnected place. The truth is, is that when you get out of most of the cities in Australia, there's nothing until you hit the next city. So um, Perth, on the western coast of Australia, the closest city to Perth is Adelaide, which is 2,000 kilometres away. Jesus. Yeah. So if your car breaks down driving from Perth to Adelaide, you're fucked. You're fucked. Don't mm-hmm. do that. Don't. Well, make sure you've got your car's in good nick if you do. Try. So on to the next. Deborah Everest and James Gibson, both from Victoria, disappeared in late 1989. Deborah from Frankston was a student at Menashe University. She loved writing and wanted to be a journalist. 
She'd had to withdraw from uni for a little while to look after her father who had cancer. She was close to James, who was a more freewheeling hippie type who had deferred um, from uni for a year to go traveling. They made plans to meet up at Confest or Convergence Festival, a music, art and alternative lifestyle festival held in the bush near-ish to Aubrey-Wodonga. Sounds great, except it's in the bush. <laughs> I can't believe you I don't know that. Well, you do. You also hate the beach. Yeah, fucking hate the beach. I love the beach. Ugh. Love the outside. Jesus, fuck um, that. So Debbie wasn't really into all the hippie shit, but she did like James and was looking forward to a bit of respite from the difficulties of looking after a sick dad. Her, he, her dad had just had an operation before Christmas and he was doing well, so everybody was happy in a good mood. Um, both Peggy Gibson and Patricia Everest, the couple's mothers, felt weirdly anxious as they dropped James and Debbie off separately at the train station on the 28th of December. Peggy was not pleased that James had planned to hitchhike part of the way to the festival, but he told her that it was perfectly safe and that she'd been watching too much TV. Nope, she's just worried and concerned, and rightly so. Do not hitchhike. Don't do it. Don't no hitchhike. way. Nobody hitchhikes anymore. If you do hitchhike, stop hitchhiking. You're a fucking idiot. So the plan was for the two of them to travel with friends, but they arrived too late to Sydney on the 29th and the friends have left without them. So the friend, uh, Debbie and James planned to leave the next day instead, the 30th but they never made it to the festival and they never made contact with their families on New Year's. Patricia, Deborah's mum, spoke to James's mum, who tried to reassure her, saying that they are probably somewhere where they can't call, i.e. the middle of the bush. Um, Patricia t- tries contacting all of Debbie's friends to see if she was with any of them, but they all said no. By January 15th, um, Patricia Everest and Peggy Gibson go to the police, but the cops don't take the report very seriously. Two 19-year-olds, one of them a hippie, the other an art student, en route to an alternative lifestyle festival around New Year's is not high on the list of police priorities. You they, don't say. You don't say. They reassure the mums that 86% of missing people turn up within a fortnight. Is that true? I, the cops said it, so it must be true. Another fortnight comes and goes with no sign of Debbie or James. Then another, then another. Debbie's dad's cancer comes back and there's no contact from his daughter. The mothers organise a search, hire a private detective, but nothing turns up. They post missing persons posters featuring photos of James and Debbie into shops, petrol stations and light posts up and down the Hume Highway. They turn to the media and a profile about them is written up in the Herald Sun. So on March 13th, 1990, the first breakthrough in the case occurs. A pack is found at Galston Road near Galston Gorge, 30 kilometres northwest of Sydney. The lady who finds the pack uh, rings the phone number that was written inside and Peggy Gibson answers the phone. The pack is given to the local police. To Patricia and Peggy, although they've held on to hope, it seems to confirm their worst fears. James Pack wouldn't be lying on the side of the road hundreds of kilometres away from where he was meant to be if nothing bad had happened to them. Um, So the police, the local police organise a search of the area and the story is picked up by Channel 9 News. The news reports stare up a few memories, including one from a man named Peter Butcher, manager of the local church youth camp, who says that he saw the pack around Galston Road on the 5th of January 1990, nearly three months prior. He said that there was clothing and a towel draped over the wall that the pack was found leaning against. So James and Debbie would have left Sydney on the 30th of December trying to hitch on the Hume Highway, but James's pack was seen five days later north of Sydney and 500-odd kilometres away from where they were meant to be at the festival. Oh, I'm so sad. Yeah, it's not good. It's, it's not good. <laughs> so, Simone Schmidl was born on June 8th, 1969 in Regensburg, Germany. She caught the travel bug young at age 11 when she went with her parents on a trip to Canada. Simone was outgoing and sweet-natured and she loved the outdoors, unlike Jess. 
Well, good, because I'm not going to get murdered by a backpack murderer. Um, are you victim blaming because no. she likes the outdoors? No. Lots of people like the outdoors. And lots of people get killed or die in the outdoors. And lots I of ain't going to be one of them. Inside. I don't know about that. You're, you're inside, you're outside. You're going to get murdered somewhere. Well, not maybe not really, but your odds are the same, I'm sure. Okay, you're so. the one that brought me into this conversation. I was very happy listening to all of this stuff about Simone, Simone Schmidl. She sounds great. She was great. I'm going to keep talking about her. Good. She was quite athletic. She enjoyed skiing, swimming, riding, and playing handball, which is more sport than I have ever played in my life. Her Did parents, you play handball at school? But Didn't like you? handball is in the sport, like not actually like just oh, hitting. Like, yes, I played handball at school. I went to school in Australia. Everybody played handball. <laughs> Um, so her parents called her Simi. She Aww. went to Canada in 1986 with a friend and then again in 1989 where she traveled to Alaska. She met a bunch of Australians on a holiday there. Um, in 1990, back in Germany, she told her parents that she was going to quit her job and meet up with her friends in Australia to go traveling. She arrived in Sydney on the 1st of October 1990 and was told that the way to get to Melbourne was to get the train to Liverpool and hitch from the Hume Highway. Simone and another girl that she met, another German girl that she met in transit called Jeanette did just that. Arriving in my voice just, just went very that. New it Zealand. It went very uh, Kiwi. Welcome did to just that. Murder in the Land of Hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> next podcast. Next, next podcast. podcast. <laughs> New Zealand murder podcast with incredibly offensive accents the yes. entire time. Good. Um, so, yes, they hitched safely. From Sydney to Melbourne, and they had lots of great stories to share about the characters they met along the way. Um, Sim, uh, Simmy had one of the guidebooks that literally said word for word, Australia is a safe place to hitchhike. So she was all about the hitchhiking life. Um, she went all over Australia. Her and Jeanette bought a little car in Melbourne, drove back to Sydney with friends, then drove all the way up to North Queensland where they camped along the way. They came back to Melbourne in mid-November, hitched back to Sydney, stayed for a bit before flying to New Zealand, where they listen to the new podcast, <laughs> Murder in the Land of Hobbits, Hobbits um, on the Coming 20th soon. of November. So they traveled around New Zealand from Auckland to Rotorua. She called her dad from New Zealand around Christmas time and told him that she was having an amazing time. She promised her dad that she wouldn't take rides from strangers. On January 19th, the girls headed back to Sydney. Simi's mama, Owenia, was flying into Melbourne on the 24th, and Simi was going to meet her at the airport. So they had planned to keep traveling around Australia in a camper van. She'd gone to Manly to pick up some traveler's checks that she'd left with a friend, but the friend wasn't there. So she returned to the home of her Australian friends, the Murphys, before beginning the trip back to Melbourne. Her friend Christine's mother told her not to hitch, but Simone was like, I'm so experienced. I've hitchhiked all over Australia. I'm all good. She actually took out the guidebook and pointed to the line that said that hitchhiking was safe in Australia to like make Christine's mum not worry. Um, she set out at 8.15am on the 20th of January 1991 to take the train to Liverpool to hitchhike again at the Hume Highway. The trains weren't running that day to tr- due to track work, so she was forced to bus it. A local resident, Jeanette Wallace, was driving to the Hume Highway McDonald's when, a si- when she saw a girl with a huge blue multicoloured backpack standing out on the road with a sign saying Melbourne. When she came out of the Maccas five minutes later, the girl was gone. Simi never met her mother at the airport in Melbourne. <laughs> Joanne Walters was born on January 26, 1990, near MyStake in South Wales. The OG South Wales, not New South Wales, like actual Wales. Um, Joanne was... OG Wales. OG Wales. Joanne was a really smart girl. She did really well at school and she loved children. 
She decided to get a childcare qualification after leaving school, thinking it would be the best bet for her to earn money and travel anywhere in the world working as a nanny. After graduation, she set out on her big trip, starting off in Europe, nannying in Italy, Greece and Sardinia. In Greece, she met a girl named Pauline Reed, who she got on with, and they made plans to travel to Australia in the next year. So in June 1991, the girl sat down in Sydney. They started off in Brisbane, where Joanne worked in a rubber factory, of all things, for a spell, before hitching up to the Sunshine Coast and then onto Cairns and Airlie Beach. The girls split way up north, with Pauline heading to Magnetic Island near Townsville and Joanne heading down south to Sydney, where she would catch up with Pauline later on. Joanne stayed at the original Backpackers Hotel in King's Cross. While there, she met another Brit, a girl named Caroline Clark. Caroline Clark was born in Surrey and she was a bit of a posh Brit. She went to private school, etc., etc. Despite being from different social classes, Caroline and Joanne got on like a house on fire. Joanne, Caroline and a bunch of other young British travellers got the idea to run a flat in Sydney and all cram into it to save money. Uh, Joanne at the time was working as a nanny for Dr. Deborah Jensen at a house in Kirribilli which Australians will know as the suburb where one of the Prime Minister's residence is located, so very posh, making making a fair amount of money, I assume. Joanne worked there for a while and got on very well with Dr Jensen, but after a couple of months in early 1992, Joanne announced that she was going to quit and get a job fruit picking. I don't know why you would stop nannying in Kirribilli. I'm going to go pick oranges. Sounds like a great idea. Sounds like a great idea. Anyway, Joanne, Caroline, and a couple of others from the flat set off for Mildura, where... (gasps) I know people that are there. It's where the fruit comes from. Um, What fruit? There's like orange... They grow oranges and stuff in Mildura. Oh, yeah. So you drink... I thought you were just like, that's where all fruit come from. I'm like, (laughs) all the fruit. (laughs) Did you know that every fruit comes from Mildura? (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. Um, so in Mildura, a guy named Vince Capogreco, who owned a vineyard. I don't know if I pronounced his name correctly. I googled Capagreco? pronunciations this episode of various things. Capogreco? Capogreco, I think that's right. No, that um, right. So this guy owned a vineyard and he said he was going to pick him up, drive him to the vineyard so they can start work picking grapes. Um, they took a train to Liverpool and split up, hitching their way to Mildura, and they made it. They started work picking grapes. They finished on the 23rd of March and Joanne and Caroline hitched a ride with the truck driver back to Sydney without incident. The two other girls went in a separate vehicle. Joanne, Caroline, another one of the fruit picking girls, Nina, and another British guy named Steve then went on to Tasmania, hitching again from one stop after Liverpool, Casula Station. They got down to the edge of Victoria, got on the ferry, went into Devonport, going on to Launceston, but there was no work to be found in Tassie. Um, Joanne and Caroline decided to go back to New South Wales on the 12th of April. Um, Joanne and Caroline had a going away party on April 17th because everybody who was living in the flat was now going their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the girls were going on to their next part of Australia. They left at 7.30am on April 17th. Steve Wright saw them leave. No one, when they were interviewed later, really had a handle on where the girls were planning to go. One person thought they were heading to Western Australia. Another person said they were heading to Victoria. Um, Steve thought that they were going down, they wanted to go down the Great Ocean Road. Um, but the only thing that he knew for sure was that their plan was the same as it was last time. They were going to get the train to Kazula and hitchhike from the Hume Highway. Um, the girls' families back in the UK never heard from them again. Significant dates went by Father's Day, Sister's Birthday, Father's Birthdays, with no contact from the girls. Joanne Walters' visa was up on the 28th of May and her flight home was the 27th. And when she never showed up at the airport, her family knew that she was probably never going to come home. 
Gabor Neugebauer, which I hope I am pronouncing right because I listened to a weird YouTube video pronunciation video for like two hours trying to get it right, um, was born on the 6th of April 1970 in Sulz, Germany. Gabor was a quiet but friendly person. He wasn't exactly an overachiever at school, but he did okay. After graduation, he went straight into his compulsory military service during the last Is that month- a thing? Yeah. In Germany? In lots of places. Sweden, other places. Sweden's the only other one I know of. Singapore. I knew there was one more. And probably much others. Mm. Okay, so um, during the last month of his service in August 1990, Gabor was at a club where he met Anya Habscheid. The two began dating and they both had a love of travel, which they bonded over. The couple traveled extensively in Europe before heading down south to Australia on the 21st of October 1991. Um, They first went to Indonesia, but the weather was bad from a volcano. So they decided, classic Indonesia, always having volcanoes ruining plans. Um, They decided spur of the moment to head to Australia. They arrived in Darwin on the 20th of November 1991. Um, They went around the Northern Territory. Saw Uluru, went to Cairns, Brisbane, and then Sydney for Christmas. Um, They actually went to the same Bondi Beach Backpackers Christmas party that Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark attended. Shut up. Right? They didn't meet, I don't think. Um, They needed to drive 4,000 kilometres back to Darwin to make their flight back home on the 1st of January 1992. Their plan was to go to Indonesia again before flying home to Germany. On 24th of January 1992, Anya's father went to meet their flight at Munich Airport and they never came through the gate. Neither Anya's parents nor Gabor's had heard from them since Christmas Eve. They assumed that they were just somewhere that they couldn't contact, not impossible both in the Australian outback and in Indonesia. The parents, while they were concerned, didn't really start to panic. They were sure that they would call in a few hours to explain the missed flight, but the call never came. Anke Neugebauer reported them missing to the German police on January 30th. Not surprisingly, the German police and the Australian embassy, which Anke also contacted, didn't think that the two missing backpackers were high priority. So the family of all the other missing backpackers had also contacted police and had been told similar stories. Basically that young people hiking in the bush go missing all the time, essentially. And that wasn't super high priority. Um, But the families knew that something was seriously wrong. Anya and Gabor's case was the first to receive any great scale of media attention. Um, The Neugebauers and the Habscheids had gotten a private investigator, Neville Clark, to look into the case in Australia. The families flew into Australia on the 10th of April. By this point in time, stories about the missing Germans had been in the newspaper and on TV. On the 13th of April, the missing Germans were one of the top stories on Channel 9 News and on Channel 7's Real Life which is a current affairs program I've never heard of before. Um, the cases of the missing Germans and other missing backpackers, including Simone Schmidl and another two missing travellers, were being connected. So that was the kind of the first time that anybody was like, hey, all these backpackers keep on going missing in the same spot. Wonder what's going on? Yeah. Um, so there was a clear pattern emerging in the disappearances, but the police hadn't confirmed or denied anything. So we've got our missing backpackers. I am not going to talk too much about the individual, like, initial investigations into the missing backpackers, but they rest assured they were being looked for. Um, their parents were stopping at nothing to find them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, as I started to mention, like, nobody had really connected the cases all together yet. It was kind of, like, individual, like, oh. Well, it's isn't not it- as if they knew each other. They didn't know each other. Anything. They didn't at this point, even 100% know that they'd all gone missing from the same 
around the same area. It was all like, oh, well, they went hitchhiking. You know, there's only one road that you can hitchhike, you know, from Sydney to Melbourne, basically, if you're not going on the Great Ocean Road. So it wasn't necessarily like initially like, oh, it's the work of one evil madman. It was more like, how did all of these people go missing? What are the different threads? What's going on? Yeah. Alrighty. So the Belangelo State Forest is located three kilometres south of the town of Berrimah, just off the Hume Highway in the Southern Highlands region of New South Wales. The forest is around 3,800 hectares of mostly pine plantation with some native forestry. If you're planning a trip, the forest has two four-wheel drive tracks, bushwalks and camping areas. I wouldn't recommend it. Couldn't pay me. (laughs) On the 19th of September 1992, Keith Seeley and Keith Caldwell were running through the bush doing an orienteering exercise when they came across something suspicious under a ledge in a rock. Initially, they thought it was part of a kangaroo, but it becomes apparent when the Keiths look into it that it's a human body. The Keiths head back to Keith Caldwell's car to get his mobile phone to call the Bowerall police. So the police arrived to the outcrop after dark. Senior Constable Andrew Gross from the Goulburn Police Crime Scene Unit was the first to observe the scene. He observed, and I am quoting directly here, a right elbow, the skin hardened and yellow, protruding from the side of a pile of dry sticks and leaves. The top of a head and boots were sticking out each end. The sticks up to one and a half metres long were placed lengthwise horizontal to the body. End quote. So the body was face down and Gross could tell that it was female. She was wearing a dark blue t-shirt, blue jeans and black shoes with two rings and a bracelet on the left hand. Once they had fully examined the area, they rolled the body over to place it in a body bag and they observed that her t-shirt and bra were pulled up over her breasts but pulled down at the back and that the fly of her jeans was undone but the top button was done up. So when they first found the body, they were wondering if it was one of the missing Germans. But when the Goulburn unit made contact with the Sydney police, the jury confirmed that the body was that of Joanne Walters. Obviously, the police needed to search the area for more evidence and for the body of Caroline Clark. Her body would be found the next day. During the search of the area, police observed something in a pile of sticks underneath the trunk of a fallen gum tree. It was a mass of clothing with visible limbs. Again, there was a layer of sticks and leaf litter over the body. She was lying face down, wedged into the side of a fallen tree. She had a red cloth wrapped around her head, which had holes that looked like bullet holes through it. Her arms were out above her head and her feet were pointing downward. She was more decayed than Joanne, owing to her more exposed position. Around the area where her body was found, police located six cigarette butts, Longreach brand, and a twenty-two Winchester cartridge case. It was all inter- also interesting what was missing from the scene, i.e. none of the girls' things, packs, cameras, what have you, was found near the body. Um, so I don't think people like it too much when I go into deep detail with the autopsy, so I'm going to keep it light and breezy and just talk some about some things that will come into play later on. No, I, I just get upset when, like, she was wearing jeans and a black shirt and black shoes. It's just like, oh, this, this is so sad. Anyway, no, go deep. It's all right. Go deep. It's fine. I'm fine. Okay. I'm you just, don't look fine. Jess no, has I'm, been sitting here with like her head in her hair. <laughs> I'm just really sad for these people. It is all. incredibly sad and it's all very horrific. All righty. So this is Joanne Walters' autopsy. Um, Dr. Bradhurst, who attended, found dark hairs on the front of her shirt and jeans and 11 clutched in her hands. Um, the clothing and the gag around her mouth were discolored due to decomposition. There appeared to be an untied ligature around the front and sides of her neck, which suggested some form of strangulation. She was wearing no underwear. 
There was no evidence of any penetration injury, but due to decomposition, it was not possible to tell whether there was any bruising or abrasions in the area. Um, So as to her injuries, they were clear stab wounds, three to the right of the chest, one to the front left of the chest, and one to the front right of the neck. On her back, there were two stab wounds on the back left side, five to the back right of the chest, and two to the spinal cord at the base of the neck. That's savage. 14 stab wounds in all. Um, The stab wounds were quite deep, and the two to the back of the neck would have paralyzed her but not killed her. The fatal blows were to the vital organs. The spine had been cut in several places and two of the ribs had been cut through. Um, There was no defensive wounds on her hands and that combined with the gag and the possible ligature indicated that she was restrained during the murder. Only one knife was used and the width of the stab entry wounds was around 30 by 10 millimetres. The official cause of death was stab wounds to the chest and neck. The time of death was between April and June 1992. Caroline, in contrast to Joanne, was shot. There were 10 bullet entry holes in her skull, shot through the fabric that was tied around her head. The bullets were from a small caliber weapon, a twenty-two, and some of the bullets had been fired from a gun with a silencer. The bullets were fired from three different directions. There were four bullets entering from the left side of her head, three from the right, and three from behind. She also had one stab wound in the back, below her right shoulder blade. The doctor couldn't determine whether or not the stab wounds or the gunshots were the cause of death, but, you know... Yeah. Due to the fact that Caroline was more decomposed than Joanne, it was easier to pin her time of death as somewhere in April around the time the girls went missing. Um, So some more interesting things were found in the area where Caroline was located. Um, There was an area where eight spent 22 cartridge cases were located and six cigarette butts had been found in the same location. So to investigators, it looked like the killer had stood in one location smoking and firing off shots. Um, but since the bullet wounds came from three different locations, it was likely that he had moved Caroline around so he could shoot her from different angles, basically. So there was <laughs> Jess is just looking at me like I murdered Fifi in front of her. <laughs> I didn't do it. I'm just telling you what happened. Oh, I know. But it also makes me think if she was like, if there were so many positions on her head where she was shot from, she could she have been running? Like, no, I don't think so because it was three to the front, three to the right, three to the back. Right. So, you know, if they were kind of all over, then yeah, maybe okay. she could have been running around, but it was it was pretty clear that she was stationary. And the, the, the shooter was moving. Okay. No, he was also stationary. So he shot her like three times in the right of the head, then went and physically moved her body. That's so fucked. Yeah. That is so fucked. So he could oh, shoot her from the different angles. Jesus. Sorry, I, I wanted to make that clear. Okay. He is phys- he, she's restrained. He's physically, physically moving, moving her. her. Yeah, and standing in the same location, smoking some cigs. Fuck wit. Yeah. Keep going. Okay, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> so there was some discussion about whether or not it was one or two killers and the investigation the investigators could make um, cases for both. That's the thing. They had a profiler look at it and he saw two. He thought there was two. He thought there was two. Usually when there are two co- different causes of death, it indicates two killers. Um, but Caroline had also been stabbed. She was stabbed and shot. So mm. it's not – and her stab wounds, like the – Length and diameter were exactly matched. the same. Not exactly the same, but they were of a similar depth yeah. and harshness. Um, so basically, it could be two killers killing two different ways. It could be one guy who liked to both stab and shoot. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, the bullets found around Caroline Clark were Winchester Winner brand twenty two caliber bullets. Um, so all bullets, I think we talked about this 
When did we last talk about somebody getting shot? Um, all bullets have like signs on the bullets, like marks from the pin marks and scratch marks and all the other little divots and stuff that are inside the gun when they're fired. Um, so these bullets had an additional interesting feature, um, a crescent-shaped firing pin impression that the ballistics expert Gerald Dutton could link specifically to coming from Ruger 1022 brand rifles made before 1982. Right. Um, they also had two little distinctive burrs on the bolt face, which would have come from a specific Ruger 1022. So we've got the crescent-shaped firing pin impression. I have no idea what a firing pin impression is. I don't know anything about guns. I read so much stuff about rifles and how rifles were made and how a bullet comes from a rifle. And I literally was like, how can I be trying to learn so much and yet understand so so little (laughs) if any listeners know anything about guns specifically rifles please send me an email i tried at the land of us gmail.com send us i tried to understand how these impressions were made i don't understand um my understanding is that the crescent the crescent shaped firing pin impression is from all Ruger 1022s and the two little burrs on the back of the bullet are from the specific gun. Right. So okay. you could have any bullet from a Ruger 1022 made with the before 1982 with a crescent, but only these two little, two little burrs from this one specific gun. Okay. Whew. I hope that made sense. I don't know. I don't know anything about guns. Um, there were also some marks on some of the bullets to show that um, a silencer had been used. So some shots... All fired from the same gun, 1022, some shots with silencer marks, some not, for whatever sick reason. Alrighty, so the wind, the wind, the media had caught wind of the story. The wind had caught media. The wind, the wind had caught wind of itself. Um, reporters were camped out around the forest and the Australian and English tabloids had run with the story of a crazed Aussie serial killer stalking backpackers. Um Addressing the media, Jill Walters, Joanne's mum, said, these people who have done this to these girls, they are just proper animals and they deserve to be shot. Correct. Hear, hear. Um, the police were quick to try and put out some of the fires created by the media, saying that, you know, automatically saying that it was some crazed nutto running around the bush, murdering backpackers probably isn't, you know, can't really say that straight away. No. Um, they would be right though, spoiler right. Um, but the police were saying, we're keeping all avenues open. We don't have any suspects. We're just trying to work out what the hell happened. Um, it was a long time after the girls were found in 1992, um, until the next body would be found. It was late October, 1993, when a potter named Bruce Pryor found more bodies in the Blanglow State Forest. Is that the guy that was like, I'm going to go find more bodies? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he was And then he was like, why do they think I'm a suspect? It's because you look weird going into a forest being like, I'm going to go find bodies. Yeah, but I think that's nice. He, he, he wasn't like, I'm a big weirdo who's going to find bodies. He thought that the police had left the area too soon and that there was probably no, I know, more things to be found. you can understand like at face value. At face value. You. If you're like, the one that finds um, the bodies, the police are going to be like, hey. Because then again, us. they could be like, hey, kind of you look like the killer going back and visiting the scene. Yeah. Soz about it. Okay. So the Potter guy found. Bruce Pryor. Yeah. He also had his life ruined because people thought he was the serial killer for ages until they actually find you out who did it. You didn't do it, it. doll. Right. You didn't do it. It's all right. So he was pretty familiar with the forest. He went around for a while. Um, after the girls were found for a couple of months trying to look for clues and stuff like that. He just thought that the police hadn't 
done enough. Like he was like, I know the forest. I know where weird shit is. I can find some stuff. I know where weird shit is because I've done it. Nah, no, leave Bruce Pryor alone. Um, so he kind of fizzled off in the search for a little while and then one day he he had planned to go fossicking at Fitzroy Falls and What's he was fossicking. What's fossicking? Like looking for gems and gold and shit. I've never fucking heard that word before in my You've life. You've never heard the word fossicking? No. Did you not like go on like a field trip to like that little village they have at Kabulcha where yeah, it's like old timey and you fossick? I thought that was just Panning for gold. Yeah, that's what fossicking is. All right, I just didn't know what the word fossicking was. Fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, that's going on a T-shirt. Fucking fossicking. Fossicking's a very Christ. fun activity. You can find lots of stuff. I still have a little bit of gold that I fossicked um, <gasps> back in the day. Oh, my God. That just reminds me of something. Oh, no. Okay. So I used to work at a jewellery shop, right? Yeah. Calling it a jewelry shop is a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah. It was a jeweler. And like other random shit. Yeah. We had this guy come in that obviously had gone fossicking. Mm. That's where you search for gems and gold and shit. He had two Ziploc bags Mm -hmm. with mud, shiny mud. He's like, How much do you reckon I could get for this? I was like, "Um, That's just mud. (laughs) It's not anything. He went into a jeweler at Chips with mud. Not even a real jeweler. He could have bought a toaster there. <laughs> or like um, a carousel thing. Oh, yeah, they had weird carousels and like little statues. Oh, but yeah, he came in with shiny mud. Shiny and mud. And me and this girl, we worked together and we were oh. like, like, that has no value whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you for bringing mud into our store. Retail man. <laughs> so um, funny. So, yeah, he was planning to go fossicking around Fitzroy Falls. Um, but he started driving there and he was like, what the fuck am I doing? I've got to go to Belangelo. So he literally just, like, does a 360, goes back to Belangelo. He, like, was like, all righty, if I, if I were a body, if I were a freaky serial killer guy, where would I go to hide a body? So he went to this place that he knew of, which is um, off the – well, he actually thought, like, well – he would have to drive them there so it would have to be off a fire trail or something like that because mm. he'd have to get his car yeah, yeah. to where they were going to be. So he went off the fire trail and started walking around being like putting himself into the mind of the killer uh, and started Did walking around. Did he become around. a cop after this? No, I think he's still a potter. Um, so he makes pots? Yes. That's what a potter is, Jess. I- <laughs> Jess is learning all kinds of words today. So <laughs> Jess is real mad. She's big mad. He got out of the car, um, started walking around, and literally not 50, minute, f- 50 metres away from where he parked his car, he found a bone lying on the ground. He was like, oh, you know what? This he is- wrapped it in his jumper and he put it in the car. Can I do the podcast, please? I'm creating like a mood and like an environment where our listeners going to be like, what's going to happen next? And then Jess is like, this is going to happen. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Let me say it. I worked really hard on this. You just gave me shit about not knowing about Fossa King. All right. All righty. Now I even. <laughs> he didn't actually wrap this bone up. He wrapped a different bone up. So we saw the bone. He was like, hmm, boy, I hope that's a kangaroo bone. And it wasn't. 
Um, so he kept looking around uh, into the bush where he found another bone, and this bone was a skull. So definitely not a kangaroo. Also, everybody's like, oh, bones in the forest must be a kangaroo. Like, it's, I feel like it's the Australian version of like when you listen to American murder podcasts and the person who finds it the body is mannequin. like, it's got to be a mannequin. I'm like, yeah, all these shop mannequins just lying around in forests and rivers and shit. Driving around shop mannequins. That's a real yeah. question. Right? Um, so he picked up the skull. He saw that it was quite small, so it was probably a female. And was like, all right, he got to get to the police. He decided to take the skull with him and he wrapped it up in his jersey and left it on the front seat of his car because he thought the police wouldn't believe him. Um, the police did believe him. And they thought he was the killer. Um, they saw the skull on the seat of his truck covered in the jersey. Uh, the cops are like, all right, mate, why don't you show us where you found this thing? Then he like walks them around and was like, here's the bone. Here's where the skull was. Um, and then the police are like, Come with us, cuff him, boys. They did not cuff him, boys. They sent him on his way and was like, thank you. But they, they, the police found another body. Um, so this body was again partially covered in sticks and leaf litter. Um, the police were kind of like, alrighty, mate, just show us where you found the little bits and pieces. They didn't tell Pryor that they'd like like seen the body yet. He was still like showing them interesting stuff. And then while they were walking around with Pryor, they found another body. So two bodies found in the forest. Um, it was getting dark at this point, so they had to go back and then come back the next day, leaving like one police officer to watch over the bodies. Imagine being, being that, that guy. guy. <laughs> Fuck that. No way. Hey, uh, Steve, can you just stand here and you next know, to these two you skeletonized know he was a new bodies? Recruit. You oh, for know. sure. It was his second day on the force. Like the first day, he'd like taken down some people's like license plate incorrectly and he was getting in a little bit of trouble and then the next day they were like hey mate come on up to Blangelo we've got a really important job for you in the dark with a body where someone two bodies two bodies where someone has killed them and he might come back he might come back good luck good luck Steve Steve. (laughs) Jesus Christ absolutely no I'd be like you know what I don't think being a small town police officer is worth it I'm gonna be an accountant Why didn't I decide to follow my dream of being a rugby league star? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of thoughts would come to you standing in the forest watching over two skeletons that night. Oh, my God. I wonder if he took a book. I mean, you have to watch the bodies. But they're not going to go anywhere. It's nighttime in a forest also. He's going to bring a book and like a little reading lamp. I don't know. I don't know, Steve. that you clip onto the top of the book so you can see what (laughs) <laughs> oh poor steve um oh, all righty so back to our incredibly serious death um i know i was sobbing before and you now. were poor steve. Oh, poor steve um pour one out for steve today guys your job will never be as bad as his no um so the next day when the police came back to the area they found a silver chain a crucifix and a bracelet um one of the bodies was a fully intact skeleton and the dental records indicated that it was the body of James Gibson. The other body uh, was not intact. It had been scattered around a little bit, but it was obvious to the police that it was Deborah Everest's body. Um, so as the bodies were skeletonized, there was not much information to be gleaned from them as from Joanne and Caroline. James's autopsy showed um, a stab wound to the upper middle of the spine between the shoulder blades, which would have paralyzed him. There were around seven stab wounds to the chest, front and back, and the size of the cuts was roughly the same as the wounds to Joanne Walters. 
Um, the body of Deborah Everest had two fractures to the skull behind the ear that indicated blunt force trauma. The skull had four marks that looked like they were inflicted by a sharp blade to the forehead, but a slice, not a stab. There was a stab wound to the lower left rib. There were no defensive wounds on the hands. Well, no defensive wounds on the bones of the hands. Um, and a pair of knotted tights were found at the crime scene that indicated that Deborah was restrained at the time of the murder. There were also lead fragments recovered from the scene from a twenty-two caliber bullet. So at this point in time, they're like, the cops are like, all righty, some shit has gone down. They created a task force, which was called Task Force Air. Originally, that it was E-Y-R-E, as in Lake Air, but the media picked it up as A-I-R. And so they were called like Task Force Air, like vanished into thin air. Um, the head of the task force, I thought that was an interesting fact. Jess clearly didn't agree. <laughs> Um, the head of the task force was a man named Clive Small, who had a reputation of being like one of the good guys. He had, um, previously been involved in a case where he, um, he was basically, uh, one of the few people who was like fighting corruption in the Sydney police force at the time. And we know how corrupt Aussie cops can be. So he was like, fight corruption. one of the good ones. Fight, yeah. Hey guys. Fight, fight corruption. corruption. <laughs> That's why I got a t-shirt. Yep, fight corruption. <laughs> Everybody's going to think that it's some like real activist shit. No. Like, no, it's just from this weird murder podcast. Um, so officially they had four bodies in the Blanglo State Forest and no real leads except for the Ruger 1022 rifle, which ballistic evidence determined the bullets must have come from. Um, Bruce Pry, who found James and Debbie, was interviewed and asked whether he had any involvements in the death, which of course he denied. He's like, I'm a potter. I'm busy. I'm making pots. I'm making pots. I'm hiking in the woods to find bodies. I'm doing your job for you. Yeah. He actually said when when one of the cops were interviewing him, I don't have the direct quote, but one of the cops was kind of trying to lead him and be like, so just hypothetically say if you were a murderer, where would you put the body? And he was like, mate, if I killed somebody, I would put them so fucking far in the ground that you would never find them. We would not be having this conversation. Like, if I killed somebody, I would bury them good. Because he was in the documentary that I watched about this. And he yeah. was just like, I was just real upset. They thought I did it. Because I, I, I didn't. And I just wanted to help. Yeah. Good on you, Bruce. On you, Bruce. On you, Brucey. Brucey. Alrighty, so they got another lead on October 18. A man walked into the Barrow Police Station with an intriguing witness statement. <gasps> this man had claimed, don't spoil it. <laughs> this man claimed that he had been driving down Belangelo Road towards the Hume Highway when he saw two vehicles. One vehicle, a brown Falcon sedan, had a driver, a tall Caucasian man with tattooed knuckles, orangey hair and an acne scarred face. The person in the front passenger seat was holding a rifle. In the back seat was a Caucasian female in her 20s with shoulder-length brown hair. Oh, God, this is me. Um, with a gag wrapped around her head and mouth. On either side of this woman were two other male persons. The witness stated that as they drove past, the female noticed him looking at her, sat up abruptly and looked frightened. The second vehicle was a dual cab four-wheel drive ute, half brown, half beige. There were two men in the front seats and a man and a woman in the back seat. This woman also had a gag wrapped around her mouth and head and had also noticed the witness and seemed frightened. The witness went into exhaustive detail about the things that he saw down to the fact that he could tell that a man in one of the cars wasn't a laborer as he had clean, neat hands. Again, these are cars driving past him on the highway. So, bit sus. The witness statement was signed Alex Malat. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. 
on the ground. The police team were still searching an extended area around where the bodies of Deborah and James were found. They hadn't found anything of particular interest in about a month when Sergeant Jeffrey Trichter, while leading his search team, came across a clearing quite a few kilometres away from where the bodies of James and Debbie were found. In this clearing, he found an empty bullet packet, a length of rope and a pair of pink women's jeans. Initially, he dismissed it because they'd found a lot of weird shit in the forest by that point. But as he walked... A cult. A cult. A cult. A cult. Witches. Witches in the woods. <laughs> what? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> no, said- just like socks and shoes and stuff. Just like random stuff in the woods. <laughs> You know the woods. People throw shit in there. No, I don't. I don't go in the woods. Oh, that's right. Just doesn't know the woods. Um, so as he work, walked further into the clearing, he found a bunch of twenty-two cartridge casings, a fireplace, alcohol bottles, cans with twenty-two bullet a holes fireplace? in them. Not like a not like a brick fireplace, oh. but like a camp fireplace. Right. So a campfire is when like you put a bunch of rice. I <laughs> I've watched the Parent Trap. <laughs> Cans with 22 bullet holes in them and a bunch of wire twisted into a loop. Further into the clearing, near yet another rocky outcrop, there was a bone. A few meters away, a skull. A few after that, a boot. Once again, there was leaf leaf litter covering the body and the weirdly parallel sticks placed on top and beside. There was a lump of twisted wire and a purple headband near the body. Detectives recognized the headband as belonging to Simone Simone Schmidl. Her T-shirt was bunched up over her shoulders like Joanne Walters. The right arm was stretched up above her head and the left was found a couple of metres away from the rest of the body. In the post-mortem, it was discovered that Simone had two stab wounds to the spine, one in the middle of the neck, one in the middle of the back, which would have paralysed her. There were four stab wounds to the back of the left chest, two to the back of the right chest, which caused cuts to the ribs. Um, The stab wounds would have penetrated the lungs and the heart. The cause of death was given as multiple stab wounds to the chest and spine. There were no defensive injuries to the hands. The search team continued to search around the area where Simone was found. Um, The pair of pink jeans, which Sergeant Trichter had passed over initially, led the team to the next discovery. The pink jeans belonged to Anya Habscheid, one of the missing Germans. The searchers found a set of remains underneath a pile of logs and large branches next to a burned tree. 50 metres away, another body was found covered with branches. Dental records matched the first body next to the burn tree as Gabor Neugebauer. He was found like the other bodies lying face down and there were clear bullet holes in his skull. There was no way to definitively ID Anya as her head was not found with the body. So dental records were unusual. Obviously, because they found Gabor, they knew it was Anya. They didn't need to ID her, but they couldn't definitively ID her. Um, So it was became readily apparent that Anya had been decapitated. Um, it appeared that she had been struck with a heavy, sharp weapon like a machete or a large knife. It was not possible to tell whether or not she was alive when she was decapitated. There were no defensive wounds. At Gabor's post-mortem, it was found that he had a cloth tied around his face, cowboy style, and a gag in his mouth. His hyoid bone was broken as though he had been strangled. There were six bullet holes in his skull, no other wounds, and no defensive injuries. The bu- There were bullets removed from Gabor's skull, which Derek... Jared Dutton, the ballistic expert, examined, but he was not able to link the bullets to the ones that killed Caroline Clark, as the bullets didn't bear any of the same markings, likely due to the fact that the chemicals inside his decomposing brain would have wiped them clean, which is the grossest thing that I have ever said in my life. Dutton was able to tie other bullets found at the search area to the murder of Caroline Clark, however. 
it was clear that whoever had killed Caroline had also shut their gun in the area where Gabor was found. This was like the, not the first link because they all assumed it was the same person, but this was like whoever shot this gun that killed this person also shot a gun around this person who had died of bullet wounds. So that was kind of what definitively connected all the murders together. So although now all the bodies had been found, there was still nothing to indicate who killed the backpackers. The only leads the police really had were the Ruger 1022 and Alex Malat's overly detailed witness statement. The only thing they knew about the perpetrator was that he was a fucking sicko. So Dr. Milton, the forensic psychiatrist who worked on the case, created a sort of profile of the kind of perpetrator he would expect to commit the crime. Dr. Milton believed, as Jess mentioned earlier, that there were two killers. His reason for this was the very different ways that Joanne and Caroline in particular were murdered. One was stabbed in a frenzy. One was shot from a distance, being rotated occasionally with the bullets coming from different directions. The violent nature of the crime suggested to Milton that the perpetrators were younger and that they enjoyed violence. There were sexualized aspects to the killings. Joanne and Simone's shirts bunched up above their chest and their undone zips but button flies, but the motive wasn't sexual. The drive was to have power and control over the victims. Milton thought that the perpetrators were brothers, one older, one younger. The older was dominant, the younger rebellious but submissive to his brother. The backpackers were murdered separately, the same time and the same attack but apart from each other by varying distances. Maybe the younger brother, who was more sexually motivated, took his victim away from the older brother for a bit of privacy. Milton reckoned that the killers lived locally, were into guns and weren't necessarily overly social. The younger offender, offender two, would not be super clever. He would have a history of petty criminal offences and he would enjoy drugs and alcohol more than the other. He would most likely be the stabber who killed Carol- Joanne Walters in a more frenzied attack. Milton believed that Caroline was shot by the older perpetrator, Offender 1. Offender 1 would be in his 20s to 30s, a quiet person of average intelligence with a semi-skilled manual labour job. He'd live in an isolated place, have unstable relationships with women, have a hostile and aggressive personality, but not necessarily be a drunken brawler. He would dislike authority. He would be a loner. The fact, the, the fact that very little of the victim's property was found with them indicated that the perpetrators thought they were valuable, so they were likely from a low-income background. Milton didn't know at this point the police were about to come, an entire family of people who fit this description. And you'll find out who they are on the next episode of Murder in the Land of Oz. Oh my god, I've gone through like a roller coaster of emotions this the evening. The thing that has struck me about this episode is the uproarious laughter followed by just total silence from everyone and everything. Not even Fifi's doing anything. She's hidden behind the couch. Fifi's like, y'all are sick. This is too much for me. <laughs> yeah, I feel very fucked up right now. So I think I've read too much about the case to have any feelings about it anymore, but I remember like uh, first reading about it and being like, oh, this is dreadful. Um, so yes, bad. we will be back in two weeks' time for part two of Ellen's amazing investigative journalistic. Investigative jo- <laughs> I don't think we can call what we do here investigative journalism. I mean, you've done really well, so I'm I'm moved. Um, so if you want to uh, shout out to, uh, you know, if you want to, I don't know, talk to us on Facebook. You can at Murder in the Jess Land of Oz. is so over it. She's like, fucking whatever. Facebook us. I don't care. I'm going to go drink and um, cry. Yep. Uh, we are Mitlu Podcast on Instagram. We are uh, – you can email us at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. Um, I'm going to go have a glass of rosé and we will see you in two weeks. We'll miss you. 
Don't Google who the killer is. You'll spoil it. Wait for the next episode. Goodbye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.